Breaker. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Alastair Austin. Eight. The squad car had barely hit the curb before Detective Price had bailed out onto the pavement. He pushed his way through a crowd of passers-by to get through to reception. The soles of his shoes squeaked across the marble floor as he scanned his immediate area. Left, right, almost running straight into a blind hotel guest, waving a stick and pulling a large suitcase. Gibbons, the undercover officer he had stationed in the lobby, met the detective in front of the reception desk. She tried to explain, but it seemed like she couldn't breathe. Detective Price pulled her along. A lanky uniformed officer in a high-vis jacket held an elevator door open for them. The ride up was silent and tense. Price caught his breath. Officer Gibbons fought back the tears, the faintest tinge of dry vomit in the corners of her mouth. The elevator doors opened. Price led the way, jogging down the corridor and pushing through into the stairwell. A couple of flights up, he jabbed in the code on the door and yanked it open. A hurried walk along the corridor brought them to the hotel suite. The door was wedged open with a suitcase. The scene inside was a mess, and only Briggs and Sanders remained alive. They sat on the sofa with their hands tied, a phone on a side table with the receiver off the hook, and they dialed it with their noses, their heads, their chins. Bryce cast his eye over Foster and Jennings, dead on the floor, holes blown in the backs of their skulls, bloody brain tissue exposed, the beige carpet around them soaked a sickening red. He turned to Gibbons. Go and find something to cut those ties. Yes, sir, she said in a shaky voice, spinning on her heels and out of the suite. Bryce strode into the master bedroom. No sign of the witness. The bed covers roughed up and the football game on pause, but that was it. He headed back into the living area. What the fuck happened? He said to the men. One of them shot Foster and Jennings. Yeah, I can see that, Price said. One of how many? Two, sir. And my bloody witness? Briggs and Sanders looked at each other, lost for words, white as the hotel bedsheets. Well? Both men tried to explain. They were gonna shoot us, sir. One minute we had a gun to our heads, the next we woke up and it was just us. How the hell did they get in? Price asked. Both men seemed clueless, distant. Bryce knew concussion when he saw it. Knowing he wasn't going to get much out of either officer, he headed into the second bedroom. It was dim. One of the linen drapes ruffled at the far end. He followed the chill breeze, pulled back the drape and found an open window. Bryce leaned out and looked around him. The night was alive with city lights. Manchester Cathedral lit up in a pale white off to the right of the hotel. He heard wailing sirens bouncing off buildings, a world of cops and forensics descending on the scene, ready to cordon off, dust down and bag up. It let another detective worry about his two dead men. His only concern was his witness. And they'd taken him, killed him. If they wanted him dead, why not just leave the body here? And why kill a pair of cops? Were they total idiots? Whatever had happened, this was on him. On his watch. And the consequences? Well... He didn't want to think about those. Detective Price lit a cigarette. He peered out of the window as he blew a plume of smoke. He glanced left, right and down towards street level. Directly below, he noticed a window cleaning platform several floors down. 
Bryce tossed the cigarette. He leaned out of the window and counted the floors to the platform. He bolted from the bedroom out into the living area where Gibbons had returned with a kitchen knife. Price skipped around the crime scene and out through the hotel door. He sprinted along the corridor only to run into the code locked door. He jabbed the number in once. It didn't work. Come on. He jabbed again and pulled the handle to the right. He was through, flying downstairs one flight after another. He had to find the right room, the room next to that platform. Price checked his watch as he ran. He was sure his phone would ring any minute, the boss demanding a report. So he flew down flight after flight, out of breath and out of time. He heard the scream of sirens closing on the hotel. Forget about the witness. Someone had killed two cops. The whole city was about to get locked down. Nine. She stands there in skinny torn jeans and a baggy green jumper. Messy blonde hair and a pile of smart person books in her arms. A look of disappointment on her face. Dad, you promised? I should tell you at this point, I tend to see and hear things, as if they're real. Some prison shrink said it might be all the banks to the head I've taken. Boxing, fighting, baseball bats to the skull. Anyway, the same shrink wrote me out some of these little yellow pills. All they did was make me sick and tired, so I chucked them. I'd rather put up with a few imaginings than a fuzzy head and 24-7 farts. So Cassie stands there looking at me, shaking her head as I hold the barrel of the gun over the witness. And before I know it, I'm not putting a bullet in the kid's brain. I'm swinging my left elbow and connecting hard with the base of Frogger's skull. At the same time, I clock the kid on the head with the butt of the pistol. The pair of them drop like stones. The kid on the floor, Frogger face first on the sofa. I took my gun away and take Frogger's from his hand. I swipe it across the heads of the two cops the crazy bastard left alive. They may as well take a nap too. I slide Frogger's gun under the nearest sofa. I reach inside one of his overall pockets and find a spare plastic tie. I roll the kid on his back and tie his wrists in front of his body. I scoop him up and throw him over a shoulder. Carry him into the second bedroom, over to the window. I pull it open wider and lower him through onto the platform. He flops onto the steel mesh as if he's dead. I climb out after him and power up the winch. The motor whirs and the platform drops down a floor. Then another. Then, wham. A falling shadow heavy as a barrel of bricks landing on top of me. The platform swings and shakes, bounces off the side of the building but keeps dropping. Before I know what's what, I'm pinned to the floor, a wrinkly old face in mine. Frogger, his forearm against my throat. I thought I'd knocked him out good, but damn, jumping out of a top floor window, he's tougher and even crazier than I thought, and now he's slamming the back of my head against the platform floor. While I stop him doing that with a left across his chin, I stagger up him too. He swings and misses, I connect with a right, he drops to one knee. Out of the corner of my eye, I see the kid slipping between the platform floor and the railing. I drop to the deck and catch hold of his arm as he falls. His body hangs limp over the side. I start to pull him up, but Frogger jumps on top of me. He punches me once, twice, three times. The rubber mask stops me cutting up, but he's going to beat me senseless if I don't do something. Do I let go of the kid? I'm tempted. Wouldn't be the first body I've dropped. But no, can't do it. 
I snatch hold of Frogger's throat with my spare hand. He keeps punching. I keep squeezing. The punches get weaker. I slam his forehead against the platform railing. He flops to the floor out for the count. I drag the kid up and through the gap in the platform. I scramble over Frogger's body and hit the big red emergency stop button on the winch motor. We're a couple of feet below the room Redenko arranged for us. The linen drapes billow out in the breeze. It's cold up here, but I'm sweating like Satan's bollocks. I shake the pain from my face and loosen the tension out of my arms. I pick up the kid and launch him through the open window. I heave Frogger up over both shoulders and overhead press him. It's a struggle, but I get him half in, his arse and legs hanging out. I climb up onto the railing of the platform and clamber in over Frogger's body. I throw the kid onto the nearest twin bed and drag Frogger inside. I've half a mind to leave him out there, let him take the rap, but he'll squeal on me the first chance he gets, and I'm neck high in rhino shit as it is. I pull the drip inside and slam the window shut. The first thing I do is head to the bathroom. I turn on the light and remove my mask, check my skull for damage. No, I'm fine. Just a sweaty red sheen and a few bumps and bruises. I wipe my face and neck down with a fluffy white hand towel off the rail. I unzip my overalls and step out of them. I'm wearing a black suit and matching tie with a white shirt underneath. My weapon holstered inside the jacket. I bundle the overalls, mask and towel together and dump them on the floor in the bedroom. I pull a large empty suitcase from the wardrobe and open it out on the nearest twin bed. I throw the overalls, mask and towel in the bottom. I pick the kid up off the other bed, still out cold but breathing. He goes inside the case. Just. Good job he's small and bendy. After arranging him in the fetal position, I zip up the suitcase. I take out the travel case again. I unlock it with the same code I saw Frogger use earlier. There are two folded metal canes inside and two pairs of sunglasses. I snap out the cane to full length. I leave the travel case next to Frogger for when he wakes up. I drag the case with the kid inside off the bed. Stand it up and pull it over to the door. I stop and look inside the wardrobe. Grab a wire coat hanger. I open it out then fold it over in two. I slide it inside my jacket pocket. Slip on my shades and pull the case out of the room. I hurry to a bank of lifts at the end of the corridor and catch an empty one going down. The lift pings open on the lobby floor. I hear a siren wailing outside the entrance to the hotel. I wave my cane side to side as if I can't see a bean. I pass a blonde female cop, dressed up to look like a businesswoman but fooling no one. Another cop rushes in, unkept and in a hurry, his badge flashing on his hip. I pretend like I don't see him and he almost crashes into me. I guess one of the fuzz in the suite woke up and called it in. I realise too late that I still have my black leather gloves on from the job, but no one seems to notice. I made my way out through the front entrance and onto the street. The hotel sits on a busy four-way crossing. I head left, hearing more sirens on the wind. I wait at the busy crossing with a few other pedestrians, struggling to see in the shades. I feel a heavy hand on my shoulder. The long arm of the law, a pig in uniform. Shit. Rumbled. EMA, he says. Let me help you across. The green man flashes. The traffic lights beep. The beat cop wrestles the suitcase off me and takes hold of my elbow. He guides me across the road and hands me back the case. There you go, pal. Thank you, officer. I say, there aren't enough like you. Tell me about it, 
he shouts, jogging back across the road before the traffic can move. I breathe a sigh of relief as I move on with the case, around a couple of corners and fold up the cane. I slip the cane and shades into a public bin and peer around the corner wall of a clothes store. Blue lights flash and the scream of sirens cuts out as a convoy of police pull up outside the hotel. I grab the case and stride off a pace into the night, wondering what the hell I've just done. 10. Ivan Rodenko was trying a new topping on his pizza, chicken and garlic. Dimitri stood over the table, drying his hands on a small white kitchen towel. Well, he asked. Rodenko looked up from the pizza box, chewing slow, thinking hard. Not bad, Dimitri, he said, swallowing. Maybe a little less garlic. Rodenko picked up the next slice and held it to his lips. The front door flew open. A figure in a black suit and white shirt burst in off the dark street into the artificial light of the takeaway. I was waiting for your call, Rodenko said. Frogger didn't speak. He hurried to the table and stopped, on edge tap-dancing on the spot. Well, is it done? Rodenko asked, fixing his attention on the fresh bruise on Frogger's forehead. He dropped the slice of pizza. What happened? What are you not telling me? A loud ringtone broke the silence. Rodenko reached inside the left breast pocket of his pinstripe navy suit. Yes, he answered, eyes on Frogger, pinching tighter the longer the caller spoke. Rodenko came off the call. He was calm. Sit down, he said, laying his phone flat on the table. Frogger took a seat across from Rodenko, unsure. Pull your chair in, Rodenko said. Frogger scraped his chair in close to the table. Rodenko pushed his pizza box across. Here, eat. Frogger looked at the box, at Rodenko. It was Breaker's fault. He lost his bollocks and took the kid. Later, Rodenko said, ice cool. Now you need to eat. Frogger picked up a slice and took a bite. Rodenko grabbed a large pizza cutter off the table, a large wheeled blade with a stainless steel handle. Tastes good? He asked Frogger. Frogger nodded, taking another bite. Rodenko smiled. He snatched Frogger's right hand and pinned his palm flat to the table. He rose out of his chair and leaned in close. Two dead cops, you useless fuck. Rodenko dug the pizza cutter into the top of Frogger's hand. Blood spilled and Frogger screamed, trying to pull his hand away, yet Rodenko had all his weight pressed down on it, and he wasn't done yet. Rodenko rolled the pizza cutter back and forth with all the force he had. Eat it. Eat the fucking pizza, you dumb asshole. Frogger chewed, screamed, cried as his own hot red blood pooled out over the table. Rodenko let go. He tossed the bloody pizza cutter across the table. Frogger dropped the half-eaten slice of pizza and held his hand close to his chest, the open cut down to the bone. Rodenko stepped away from the table. Now for that other piece of shit. As Dimitri rushed out with fresh kitchen towels, Rodenko spoke to Freddy. Get the boys together. He turned to Frogger. And you stop fucking bleeding. You've got work to do. Frogger whimpered as Dimitri wrapped a white cloth tight around the cut. Rodenko stood with his arms out by his sides, cursing in Russian. Freddy helped him into his long black overcoat. Sorry about the mess, he said to Dimitri on the way out of the restaurant. As Frogger followed Rodenko and Freddy, Dimitri busied himself cleaning up the blood. 11. 
I pull the case along Dean's Gate. It's a long, wide drag lined by some of the swanky bars and restaurants in town. I'm making good progress, but the case starts to tug in my hand. I realize the kid's awake. He's banging on the inside. Shit, I forgot to leave him some air. I stop on the street outside a tapas restaurant. The case wobbles side to side. I hear his muffled shouts, so do a bunch of passers-by. They stare at me and at the case. I stare back and they move on. I unzip the case halfway around. The kid spills out onto the pavement. Now I've got another audience, a group of shrieking old women. Call the cops and you're all dead, I say to them. They shuffle on their way, pissing in their frillies. The kid gasps for air. His eyes wild. He picks himself up, stares at me, looks around him, then runs right across the street, straight up a side alley. Bollocks. I boot the case to the side of the street and take off after him. He's a fast little bugger and leaves me for dust. But I know these streets like the inside of my arsehole. Even the posher ones. I head left into another side alley. It's the much shorter route and he'll soon be sent my way by a couple of dead ends. Sure enough, I'm waiting for him when he pops right out. I reach to grab him. He body swerves me and takes off up a pedestrian street, heading towards civilization. I give chase again. I see two uni-age lads ahead, a little bit drunk. Hey, stop that kid! I shout. He stole my wallet. One of the lads reaches out and gets hold of the little bastard. I catch up to them, breathing hard. Give him back his wallet, one of the lads says. I didn't steal nothing, the kid says. He's trying to kill me. I'll sort him out from here, I say. Cheers, lads. I think they're starting to doubt the situation, but I can see they don't have the stomach for a rumble. As they continue on their way, I pull the kid to one side. I shove him inside a doorway. Don't kill me, he says. Kill you, I'm saving your arse, soft lad. You knock me out and stuff me in a case? You're alive, don't be ungrateful. I let him off the wall. Now listen, I can't protect you if you keep running off. We need to work together. Why? Just hand me over to the police? No can do. Why not? No one saw your face and I won't say nothing. Let's just say me and the law don't get on. I check the course both ways. Besides, half the bastards are bent. I hear a chopper hovering overhead. See a light in the sky. Not too far from here. Just let me go, the kid says. Better all round, yeah? This isn't Brexit or X Factor. You don't get a vote. Now come on. I take him by the scruff of the neck and march him down a couple of side streets. I find a car parked in the shadows, a silver Toyota Yaris. One of the old models. Nice and easy. I take the coat hanger out from my jacket pocket. I use it to break into the passenger door. Passenger doors are easier. Fewer wires in the door panel. I push the kid inside and flash him the gun inside my jacket. Don't get any ideas, I say. A few seconds later, I've got the engine started. The kid looks across at me as he pulls on his belt. What are you going to do with me when we get out of here? One thing at a time, Columbo Christ. I ram the seat back as far as it'll go. I look like King Kong in a clown car, but it'll do. I spin the Yaris out of its space and along the back alleys. We hit the main drag. If I can make it to the ring road, we'll be clean out of here. But there's a problem. A big roadblock-sized one up ahead. Cops in neon yellow jackets checking driver IDs. 
no doubt all ways out of the city. We pull up in a queue, two cars back from the cops. Another car pulls up behind. The police chopper drifts sideways overhead, scanning the area with a blinding spotlight. I look at the kid as I think over my next move. His left hand goes for the door handle. He unclips his belt with his right. I grab him by the elbow before he can bail. As the car in front pulls forward, I step on the accelerator. I spin the wheel, holding onto the kid with my spare hand. I pull a U-turn in the path of an oncoming coach. It slams on its brakes and we miss it by a whisker. As the kid tries to wriggle his way out, I get the Yaris up to speed. Thirty. Forty. Too fast for him to jump. He shuts the door. You'd better put your belt back on. I say, checking in all my mirrors. Wailing blue lights fill each one. I guess we got their attention. The chopper tracks us too. Tonight just keeps getting better and better. Twelve. Here's a tip. If you're going to steal a getaway car, don't pick a dinky little runabout with skinny tyres. I almost wipe the thing out as we handbrake slide across a busy intersection. Pedestrians die for cover as we skid over the road and bump up onto the curb. I spin the wheel to the right just in time to avoid a bunch of human skittles and a part blue Aston Martin. But I'm pretty sure I just knackered the suspension. I keep my foot to the floor and head up Peter Street. It takes us between the circular stone library that sits on the left and the grand old Midland Hotel on the right. As a small line of cars wait at red, I pull to the right into the headlight glare of oncoming traffic. I steer left in time to cut back in ahead of the queue of the lights, but I see police cars blocking off Oxford Road ahead, my alternative route out of the city. Without thinking, I break and throw a hard left. The Yaris mounts a sweeping pedestrian area in front of the library and old Gothic town hall. The only obstacles here are scattered trees and passers-by. I swerve around the trees and punch the horn. We snake from side to side. Dozy pedestrians slow to move out of the way fast enough. The cops follow me at a safe distance. The kid looks ready to chuck his guts up, buckled up with hands over his eyes. I can't help laughing as I look at him. It's just like when I was young, stealing cars, giving pigs the runaround, then getting paid after. If you had to ditch the car, you still got the thrill of the chase. Jumping over hedges, cutting through people's backyards. Sometimes you get caught. Others, you'd lose them long enough to nick another plush set of wheels off someone's driveway. Such a buzz. Better than sex. I'd forgotten how good it felt. Anyway, the smile is soon wiped off my face when I almost crash into a run of wooden benches on the right. I veer left, but we're blocked off by grey bollards and the white stone wall memorial. So I turn right again, ahead for Princess Street, which cuts down the side of a large pillared art gallery. Only trouble is, there's a trampling out at the St. Peter's Square stop, another of those big yellow snakes trundling the opposite way. No man, don't do it, the kid shouts. We're gonna die? Too late. I pull off the pedestrian area and across the tracks in front of the first tram. We bump and fly across both tracks to the sound of blaring tram horns. I think the kid might be right. <laughs>